Fake, fake, fakeity fake. Hi, I'm Jody. And I'm Vienno. And welcome to Imperial News, where I spend my whole week listening to the far-right podcast Rebel News, and then talk about their donations from white nationalist terrorists. <laughs> my friend Vienno. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, this is this is going to be their own fault. But hey, how are you, Vienno? I'm all right. Yeah, nothing exciting. Redoing the garden in the backyard. Existing pandemic times, so on and so forth. How are you? I am. I'm good. I just uh, went grocery shopping today. It's been pretty dead, which is nice because not only are the lockdowns in full effect right now, but I think it's also because the school season has ended. So all the uh, youths in the town are no longer here. They've all gone home, which means I got free reign to roam the shopping aisles all by myself. Woohoo! Which is nice. <laughs> This might be a shorter episode. Uh, we do have a bit of a longer news segment, but uh, yeah, the the news the main segment might be a little shorter than it has been recently. But we'll go through that, and uh, you know, I I said I hoped last week's episode was going to be out on time. It did not get out on time. Uh, you know, I never promised that it would, and I'm never going to promise that it would. <laughs> but maybe, just maybe, this one will. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Also said that last week's episode was going to probably be a bit shorter, and that didn't work out either. So maybe Jody's just a liar. Speaking of liars, we'll get to today's main segment. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to get to that. Anyways, for now, we'll do the news segment. So Imperial Roundup. Hello, my rebels. Hello, my rebels. I'm a good boy! I'm a weirdo. This is what happened on The Rebel from April 26th to April 30th. Ezra is mad that Ontario courts are deferring even Zoom hearings due to the pandemic. Ezra claims that all of their work can be done over Zoom, but this actually isn't true. And the intended purpose of the deferral is to reduce the number of court staff that have to leave their home for court proceedings during a global pandemic. Ezra focuses on an Ontario judge who was holding Zoom hearings while vacationing in the Caribbean. Morowitz says virtual hearings should also be deferred. What? Why? What's the problem with those? <laughs> I mean, just a few months ago, I don't know if you saw this, we learned that Zoom trials are so easy to do, one Ontario judge actually went to the Caribbean and held his trials from there via Zoom. Imagine that, you're sitting on the beach in the Caribbean, and then you just hop into your cabana, maybe you put on a robe to cover up your bathing suit, maybe you put up a fake backdrop to make it look like some dreary Toronto landscape, and you're ruling on Ontario matters from afar. That's how easy it is to do Zoom hearings, uh, but apparently that's, that's not easy enough. This is bad, obviously. But this one anecdote is not indicative of all legal staff and their work. Ezra claims that a federal court agreed that the COVID hotels do in fact violate our charter rights and complains that these court deferrals will keep these charter violating laws in place indefinitely. Today, the federal court agreed that the COVID jails and airports do indeed violate our charter rights, but they won't strike them down in any hurry. They won't give an injunction. That can wait, says the court. You can go through that for a few more months, said the court. In reality, the judge merely did not dismiss the case since the applicant 
John Carpe's Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, made an argument regarding the arbitrariness of restrictions for land compared to air travel that the judge decided was worth hearing. The full hearing is not delayed and will start on June 1st. Ezra ends the segment saying he is all for fewer lawyers and fewer lawsuits. Let's simplify life. Let's get rid of the red tape. Absolutely. I'm all for fewer lawyers, fewer lawsuits. To which I say, you could take that in your own hands, Ezra, and just stop suing people. Mark Morano is on to talk about the climate summit hosted this past weekend. Mark claims the Green New Deal is going to harm those it claims to protect, which is done on purpose, since as people are harmed, they will turn to the government for more help, creating a cycle of dependency. They know the negative impacts it's going to have. They know it's going to hurt poor and, and the and minorities the hardest because they're going to raise the cost of energy. But you know why they don't care? Because it's designed to do that. Because then they get to reach out and have all the subsidies and universal basic income, and they get to help them. They get more voters for life. Mark claims the government wants to create public solar panel jobs because they will then have control over workers. This is also somehow a plot to destroy small businesses, even though the obvious direct competitors are large oil and coal companies. However, according to Mark, the Green New Deal's purpose is to crush small businesses because the government can't control them, and then implement socialism with a basic income to get the population hooked on big government. So they're going to create a lot of jobs in solar and wind, but they're all going to be dependent on government mandate, direct subsidies, massive spending, and they're going to have short timelines and they have to be renewed. But they don't care because the more they get the public uh, you know, dependent on their on their actions and more income, and that's why you know that's why they love lockdowns, endless lockdowns, bankruptcy economy, and it does one very important thing: get rid of the small businesses, the mom and pops, because they can't control them with this sort of great reset agenda. They can't get them to comply with mask mandates or lockdowns or uh, vaccine passports. And the same thing is true. So with the climate agenda and with the virus agenda. They can just crush everything down and then build back better, i.e. in the socialist, universal basic income, all-powerful government model. Ezra ends the segment by claiming that Xi Jinping got the West to flatten its own economy due to the virus, but does not expand on what he means by this. He got the West to flatten its own uh, economy because of the virus. Does this mean that Ezra actually believes the virus is deadly and was created by Xi in a Wuhan lab to infect the world? Or is she secretly in control of our government and has convinced them to lock down even if the virus isn't that harmful? If that is the case, why did he need the virus to flatten the economy since he already had control over us? How deep does the rabbit hole go? Ezra says the only reason why Gandhi's passive resistance worked is because the Brits are a gentle people. Uh, the only reason why Mahatma Gandhi's um, campaign of passive resistance against the British worked is because the British were British. If you agree to take the punishments of your enemy, you better have an enemy that's gentle like the Brits. Passive resistance didn't work against Stalin or Hitler or Mao. It is not worth highlighting all the atrocities carried out by the British Empire in India alone, because that would be a multi-series podcast. But it is worth noting the essentialist claim made by Ezra that Brits, as a general category, are genteel. This, of course could be easily disproved by witnessing a single football riot. However, this is quite indicative of how Ezra thinks about cultures and people, that there can be an inherent essential character to a large number of disparate individuals. 
Ezra claims that Gandhi's passive resistance would not have worked on Hitler, Stalin, or Mao because these individuals were bloodied-minded. He then compares them to the Liberal Party of Canada, suggesting that the Liberals, too, are also bloodied-minded. Passive resistance didn't work against Stalin or Hitler or Mao. So when you say the feeble-minded people need to censor others, that's true, but it's also true that brutal-minded, bloody-minded people censor others because it's not that they have no rational counter-arguments, they just don't want to make them. I think we're dealing with a liberal party and a liberal government that's not so much feeble-minded as bloody-minded. They just want to eliminate the last independent voices in Canada. But if Ezra is arguing that passive resistance does not work against bloodied-minded people or groups, what is he suggesting to his audience about how to deal with the Liberal Party of Canada? Joel Pollack is on to talk about John Kerry. They begin by playing a 2004 campaign ad, which famously questioned Kerry's military record in the Vietnam War. This ad was later discredited and created a new term, swift boating, to refer to false or misleading political ads. However, Joel and Ezra talk about the ad as if the claims in it were true. It is worth noting that this ad was co-created by Jerome Corsi, who was an InfoWars employee and was subpoenaed during the Mueller investigation for his connections with Roger Stone. Joel and Ezra use the ad to paint Kerry as unpatriotic, as they then accuse him of working with Iran against American interests. I, I think the reason that ad 20 years ago was so effective is because it, it was so convincing John Kerry can't be trusted was one of the taglines of those ads. I, I think the same character flaws he showed in Vietnam, he showed in dealing with Iran. They claim Kerry violated the Logan Act by supposedly working with Iran against the Trump administration, which Ezra suggests amounts to espionage. Uh, you use the word leak, leaking the info about Israeli special operations. I, the word leak feels fairly passive. Oh, he leaked it to a journalist to get some press. But to actually leak that information to an enemy, to the target of Israel's operations, to the threatener of America, Israel, and all the moderate Sunni Gulf nations, seems much more than a leak. It, it almost rises to the level of, I don't even want to say the word espionage, but when you're telling your enemy about secret operations that your side has done, that's far worse than a leak. Joel also admits that Michael Flynn, short-term security advisor to Trump and current QAnon supporter, uh, was accused of violating the Logan Act, but does not explain why. President Donald Trump at the time said that Kerry should be investigated under the Logan Act. The Logan Act is an archaic law that prevents private citizens from conducting diplomacy. It's never really enforced. However, the Department of Justice did enforce it when they investigated National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Flynn was being investigated for speaking to a Russian ambassador and later pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI about those meetings, and was then eventually pardoned by Trump for that crime. The Logan Act has only been prosecuted twice, in the 1800s, and has never resulted in a conviction, but was also not why Flynn was being investigated. They are trying to use this convoluted story to get Kerry to resign, not just because of his connections to Iran, but because Kerry, who is currently the special presidential envoy for climate, believes that climate change is real. Well, I, I think he's a great danger. Um, I actually thought putting him in the climate change file was a good way of getting him out of the country and just he can hang out in five-star hotels and fly first class, private jets, just get him out of America and shut him up. But obviously it looks like he's going to continue to work on other files um, 
that he regards himself as some sort of messiah. Joel, it's great to catch up with you. Ezra is suing Catherine McKenna and Stephen Gilbo because they blocked him on Twitter. Ezra claims this is a violation of his charter rights to free expression since their government-run Twitter accounts are now, apparently, a part of the public square. Ezra then compares being blocked on Twitter to being refused a liquor license based on his religious identity. Two generations ago, the premier of Quebec named Maurice Duplessis, who was a bit authoritarian, he hated this one particular restaurateur named Roncarelli because he was the owner of a restaurant and he just happened to post bail for Jehovah's Witnesses who were arrested by police and, and Duplessis hated Jehovah's Witnesses. And so he's really mad at this restaurant guy for posting bail. So he ordered his, his, his this restaurant lose its liquor license. So you can't do that. You can't run the government like it's your personal property, like you can use it for purposes of vengeance. You, you just can't. It's not legal. That went all the way to the Supreme Court. If Gilbo or McKenna don't want to read what Sheila or I have to say, that's fine. You know, there's even a function on Twitter called Mute, where we can still read them, but they don't have to read what we say. Uh, but they didn't use that because they actually want to suppress us, to hurt us, to ban us, like Duplessis did. But being blocked from harassing a politician on Twitter is not as clear a violation of charter rights as denying someone a license based on their religious identity. Ezra then accuses Gilbo of calling him a Nazi when he merely accused Ezra of spreading Nazi propaganda. In fairness to Gilbo, Ezra did in fact host on Rebels' website a video by Golden Dawn, which is a fascist party in Greece. Golden Dawn advocates for racial nationalism and claims that world Jewry is out to get them. They also praised Hitler and called the Holocaust a lie. Ezra also claims that Catherine McKenna personally got Sheila Gunn-Reed banned from the UN. McKenna is vicious. She's got a vendetta. And she took an extreme approach against Sheila. You know Sheila goes to those United Nations Global Warming Conferences every year to report on them for us? Well, McKenna told the United Nations to ban Sheila. Although the only evidence he offers for this is a message that Sheila was denied entry to the UN based on complaints from a political delegate. And I would guess they have pissed off more people at the UN than just Catherine McKenna. Derek Sloan is on to talk about the lockdowns and unironically adopts Ezra's term, the media party. And, you know, I think that there's, there's two different groups of people in this country. There's sort of the media party people like the the, the media elites and those that, that pay attention to them. And then there's average Canadians. It was claimed that Sloan was ticketed for attending an Elmer church service over the weekend. Although on Ezra's show, Sloan claims he has yet to receive a ticket. Well, I haven't been served with anything. Um, I have read, as you have in the news, that apparently I, I uh, seem to be one of several people that are being uh, charged uh, under the Reopening Ontario Act. Um, so I, I intend, whatever I do get uh, charged with, and again, this is uh, you know a provincial offense, it's not a criminal charge, I intend to fight it. Ezra then goes on a long rant about how they could, about how they could even charge him, considering they weren't in the church and couldn't have seen what Sloan was up to. If they weren't in the church, how do they know what you did? How do they know where you stood? How do they know anything? I think this goes to your theory that maybe the whole thing's just a shock and awe to try and scare people. Like if they didn't actually see you, do what you allegedly did, how could they send you a ticket? 
However, even Sloan points out that the event was live streamed. Well, the uh, the service was live streamed, and myself and uh, another politician, Randy Hillier, uh, were invited up to the front uh, along with the two, two others. So there is a picture floating around of me being uh, at the front of that service. And a photo is circulating of him holding hands in the front of the church with Randy Hillier and the fired London, Ontario nurse who attended the January 6th riot in Washington, D.C. Ezra claims that Alberta is now the least free province in Canada when it used to be the most free. Tonight, Alberta moves from being the freest province towards being the least free. I didn't see that coming. And he thinks this because they're implementing a new curfew system due to the pandemic. Ezra fails to discuss that Alberta's caseloads are growing at a pace faster than any other province or even American state. Ezra again argues that curfews are for children. You know what a curfew is, right? Of course we do. It's what parents typically give their teenage children. Be home by 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. or whatever. Because they're children, they can't make all decisions for themselves, at least on certain things. And a teenager can get up to special trouble at, say, midnight that they might not be able to get into at midday. But the thing is, they're children. There's some of the times for curfews, too. In a time of genuine public safety emergency, like widespread rioting that are ongoing. You know, reading the Riot Act itself is a form of a curfew, really. But again, that's for criminals, not for law-abiding people. I guess a quarantine is a kind of curfew, but again, that's for sick people. That's where the word comes from, quaranta giorni, 40 days. That's how long ships had to wait before entering the port at places like Venice in the Middle Ages to make sure any sickness in the ship would have burned itself out. But a curfew for adults who've committed no crimes and who are not sick? It's not a curfew anymore, that's a police state. Whether or not curfews are effective, Ezra still seemingly refuses to understand that even though young people are less likely to die from the virus, they can still get sick and also still serve as vectors of community spread. Are there a lot of 90-year-olds going to gyms and yoga studios and playing team sports in Alberta? Or, or is this just being especially punitive? Now, I'm not being hostile to people in their 80s and 90s. I'm saying... If you care about them, why are you punishing young people? Why are you talking about curfews on young people? How on earth does that help anyone, including people in their 80s and 90s? This is such a disgrace. Ezra also claims that people who wear masks, even though they are vaccinated, are simply putting on a performance. There you have it, Joe Biden. I can't help but notice the masks. You know, they've all been vaccinated there. It's just a performance. That's the political flag they're flying, a flag of lockdownism. But while not everyone is vaccinated, masks for the vaccinated can still help to mitigate community spread. Guest Ben Weingarten complains that Democrats are going to use the tools used to go after jihadists to go after conservatives. You know that it's about using this singular event to create a narrative of the fact that the country is suffering from a scourge of, of course, as they would term it, right-wing extremism, domestic violent extremism, and thus that they will use that to justify potentially turning the very rules that should have been used to go after jihadists around the world back on American citizens. He claims that this is already being done to people who have participated in the January 6th event, since both Ben and Ezra refuse to call it a riot. Ben contrasts that Capitol riot with what he calls the 1619 riots suggesting that BLM protesters were treated kindly by the police in comparison to the Capitol insurrectionists. 
And of course, the elephant in the room here is the juxtaposition of how law enforcement was used or not used to pursue cases against people last year participating in the 1619 riots who did far more substantial damage and caused substantially more bloodshed nationwide. Which is only true if you count the number of protesters who were shot and beaten by police in those rallies, or those who were shot by fascists. Ezra complains that they are holding some of the January 6th rioters without bail, and but fails to distinguish between some of the crowd who are caught up in the actions and those who came prepared with weapons. Ezra claims we are seeing the domestic version of the Patriot Act. Well, I mean, after 9-11, there was a Patriot Act uh, that focused on external enemies and abridged civil liberties to do so. Uh, I think we're seeing the domestic version of the Patriot Act to uh, extirpate the enemy within, but the enemy is not necessarily a violent one, it's simply a political one. But this act was, since its inception, explicitly used to target domestic citizens. It is almost as if Ezra is only now upset that it might be used against white nationalist terrorists when he seemingly didn't care that it was being used to violate Muslim American citizens and abuse their civil liberties. Ben claims that Biden's first nod to progressivism was the ending of the 1776 commission. Day one of the Biden presidency really set the tone, which in part abolished the 1776 commission that the Trump administration had put in place, which was a celebration of American history and putting forth um, the, the true and accurate representation of America in education and beyond. The 1776 commission included not a single historian, but instead was point filled with partisan hacks like Turning Point's USA founder and giant head model, Charlie Kirk. Ben also claims that wokeism and cultural Marxism is now instituted at the highest levels of the American government. And the Biden administration not only did that, but also essentially imposed wokeism across every element of the executive branch of government through an executive order affirmatively advancing equity as opposed to equality. And that executive order adopted the language of the woke so-called anti-racist and basically devoted the administration to pursuing progressive, racialist, um, just essentially cultural Marxism throughout the institutions. And that is the week. This is going to be a weird main segment of the show, in part because... I, I actually happen to have communicated with the individual at the center of this. <laughs> Her name is uh, Liz Simmons, or Simons. I guess I've only internet communicated with them, so I've never heard their name actually pronounced. I guess I should have asked Liz before I, <laughs> before I did this. I did, I also want full disclosure, I actually talked with Liz since this episode has come out. She didn't really tell me anything. Uh, I just wanted to disclose that so that uh, people know that I'm on friendly terms with her and uh, I enjoy her work and she has watched some of our content as well. So, But what happened? Why, why is Ezra talking about this Liz person? Well, it turns out that Liz retweeted another person's tweet all the way back in December. And in that tweet, the person had said that the Christchurch mosque shooter in New Zealand was incited by rebel news to commit violence. Ezra ended up suing Liz because of the incitement allegation. 
that Rebel News somehow incited the Christchurch mosque shooter. Now, Liz ended up settling with Rebel, and we'll get into some of those details. And she then po- posted an apology, like an apology, stating that she did not have evidence to support the claim that the Christchurch mosque shooter was incited by Rebel News. So that's that's the inciting incident. They settled, and now Ezra's going to talk about it. And we're going to go through everything that Ezra says in this episode, and then we'll get to the uh, Anti-Hate Network of Canada, for which uh, Liz works for, their response to Ezra's piece, <laughs> basically. And then we'll give our own thoughts along the way. I will note right up front that it was a very odd episode, because Ezra calls Liz a liar at least 20 to 30 times throughout the entire, like, 20-minute segment. (laughs) (sighs) Which is amazing because he doesn't actually get to any of the substance of any of it, but still calls her a liar throughout the whole thing. So it's worth just flagging that up front. I didn't like Mark every single time he said it. Uh, I mean, I was. I thought for a fun activity, I would check off every time he says liar. I got to 20 and I stopped. And, <laughs> and it was like, it wasn't just lying. He accused her of like making things up, of fabricating the truth. She's a dis- disinfo agent. So it was really bad. And by like the time I splice clips in here, there's almost no clip I could take from this episode where he wasn't calling her a liar or some sort of disinfo agent. So that's the kind of episode we're dealing with here. Woohoo. And you could tell like how how kind of cheap a tactic this is when he reads the apology and then announces to the audience that he's not going to read the smear itself because she made the whole thing up. I'm not going to read her original smear. It was so gross. And as you can see... Even she admits she just made the whole thing up. There's a word for someone like that. She's a liar. We will eventually get to the background of this as to why this was something worth... Our, let's just say why these tweets were made in the first place such that they got retweeted. There's some more information there that Ezra seems to avoid, but we will get to it. And it's clear why Ezra wouldn't want that known to his audience. So we'll leave it as a teaser. Some of you will probably already know what it is, but we'll get there. Ezra also claims that it took her months to apologize, which itself is not true. She had posted uh, the retweet, I said, in December. I think it was a couple days later she took it down and immediately posted an apology, but then, like, uh, got rid of her entire account once Ezra was suing her. Then when the settlement got done, she brought her account back and left an apology up on the her Twitter page for 90 days, which was a part of the agreement. It's also worth noting that not only is Ezra calling her a liar constantly, there's also some misogynist attacks in there. So he really wanted to call her, she kept, he kept referring to her as a little woman. What a hateful little woman. And she only gave up that hate when she realized that if she didn't admit she's a liar now, a judge would probably come to that conclusion a year from now, and that would be worse. This actually isn't true. I think that there might be a scenario in which she fought this in court and the judge would have ruled that it was admissible, that she didn't uh, or wasn't uh, defaming Ezra. I don't think that settling is itself an admission that, like, you lied. It, It can also be admission that you didn't have the money to fight this in court. As I mentioned already, Liz works for the, uh, anti-hate network in Canada. 
And Ezra thinks this is ironic. I know you think I must be kidding. Someone so full of hatred like Elizabeth Simons that she would baselessly accuse someone of being a terrorist. I mean, someone who hates so deeply that she hangs onto a lie for four months knowing she made it up. That's the deputy director of something called the Canadian Anti-Hate Network? Surely that's got to be an ironic joke. Well, it's not a joke, but it is deliberately deceptive. Just like the phrase Antifa, you know that's actually short for anti-fascist. But we've all watched how Antifa, in fact, are the new fascists. They dress in black, they go out at night and burn and riot and loot. That's fascism, because they do it for their hard left-wing politics. But it's not a joke that they call themselves Antifa. It's disinformation. It's misdirection. It's to throw their critics off balance. So Words don't mean anything. He, he legitimately says that, and I still don't know what he means. Don't you know that National Socialism has the word socialism in it? Sure, but where did they sit in the German parliament? To the left or to the right? <laughs> left. Hard left, obviously, just like every conservative thinks because they have socialism in the name. And their German full name was the National Socialist German Workers Party. Um, they represented the German workers, so they were socialist. They always seem to want to ignore the Night of the Long Knives. Well, they also want to like ignore that Mussolini like specifically specifically called fascism a reinvigoration of the right like yeah. <laughs> it was always planned around being a right-wing ideology i've also had people argue to me that mussolini was left-wing because he was pro-union but like if you read his stuff it was like for one he didn't enact the pro-union stuff once he got into power but also it's like it was pro-union in the same sense that uh, that hitler was pro-worker in that it was like pro-german workers and it was like racialized right yeah you could even see that with like the nazi regime too where like they got into power and they destroyed and outlawed the old unions and built their own unions that they could then control so like it's not out of the question for a right-wing ideology to be like pro-union if it's something that is for them controllable and then let alone, like, Nazis inventing the concept of privatization. So, whatever. It's just annoying because they'll point to things like the fact that all the Antifa people dress in all black, so somehow that's a signifier to something, but it's like, it's not the equivalent to the brown shirts. Like, if anything, the brown shirts were the equivalent of groups like the Proud Boys, which Ezra has a connection to. <laughs> mm-hmm. All you have to do is look at the ideology of what most of the people who engage in Antifa activities and what they believe, and you would just understand. But of course, it's easy for them to just dismiss all that and to be like, like I think it was last episode, where they made it a connection between conformity and Nazism. So just, just the mere act of conforming is apparently Nazism. Like the difference in function between the outfits that the Proud Boys or like other fascist groups wear and Black Bloc is that you know, the fascist uniform is for a public signifier of how you identify politically and as a, like, threat and, like, sign that, like, you have backup type of thing. Black Bloc, the whole purpose is to hide your identity so that you don't get hunted down by the cops. Like, the purposes are completely different. He wants to paint this picture that somehow 
anti-hate network is this like paid agent or arm of the state. And so his first start is to say that they're not even Canadian. Their name is false advertising. Even the word Canadian in their name is false. There is no real Canadian support for these smear merchants. People don't like liars much. They were literally started with a grant from a U.S. smear group that specializes in accusing conservatives of being racist. Here's the TVO story about how they were starting. Let me quote. While they're still fundraising for a set of permanent research staff, they've received a startup grant from the SPLC. That's the Southern Poverty Law Center. It's an American political war room with a sordid history of just making up smears too. Ezra points out, and again, this is the only claim that Ezra is ever going to say against the SPLC, because the SPLC really does do a lot of great work fighting fascists and right-wing uh, assholes. But they always want to point to this one instance where I agree there is some aspects of it in which I think the SPLC messed up. And that is, the SPLC created a list of people that they called anti-Muslim extremists. And on that list, they included someone named Majid Nawaz. Full disclosure, Majid Nawaz has me blocked on Twitter. <laughs> I do not like him. But here's the thing. They put him on that list because Majid Nawaz, through his Quilliam organization, had worked with people like Tommy Robinson. Oh. However, what the SPLC did that I thought was kind of shady was they brought up incidents of Nawaz's past that were kind of irrelevant to why he would be on this list, like some weird incident involving a uh, stripper at some sort of club, and the issue there had to do with the fact that he was Muslim and you can't be a true Muslim if you're at a strip joint or something like this. And that's a weird call for the SPLC to try to get involved in. Yeah. And I don't know why they included that on the list. I love when the SPLC issues um, statements on, you know, who gets to be Muslim or not. And the thing is, I don't doubt Majid Nawaz's Muslimness. He identifies as a Muslim. I have no reason to doubt that. So I just find it a little bit icky that the SPLC went down that road. And I don't think they have a history of doing this. Uh, as far as I know, this was a one-off thing, and they've taken it down from their site, in part because Majid Nawaz ended up suing them. But Ezra refers to Majid Nawaz as a progressive Muslim broadcaster. There's this wonderful progressive Muslim broadcaster and activist in the United Kingdom named Majid Nawaz. I've mentioned him before, especially on my Noon Hour live show. He, he's very pro-Western, very fair-minded. He's against radical Islam. I really like him. Nawaz fits in this camp that's kind of like Dave Rubin, if anyone knows who Dave Rubin is, which is this like... They try to claim that they were on the left or still on the left, but they want to like save the left because the left has gone too woke or too far to the too far to the left. So Majin Nawaz coined a term that was called regressive leftism, which kind of took off along uh, these circles. He was the one who sort of coined that. And he spends a lot of his time defending these people like Sam Harris, who who are in ways, anti-Muslim bigots. So it's like, I get where the SPLC was coming from to a certain degree. We can see that locally with Sully Mansour, and I don't know if he's based in Canada or the US, but Tarek Fata as well. He's Canadian. Yeah, so we got, we got a bunch of locals like that. 
it's not only that we've we've covered Majin Nawas on the podcast before because this is after the whole SPLC thing. Nawaz's organization that he founded, Quilliam, they released a report on Muslim rape gangs in Britain, and a lot of people criticized this report. He had to stretch and manipulate the definition of what constitutes a rape gang to make the numbers fit what he wanted to do, when in reality, most quote-unquote rape gangs or rapes in general are not committed by Muslims in Britain. Yeah, no shit. Like, <laughs> Why would Nawaz do this to purposely frame Muslim people as being perceived as people engaging in rape gangs disproportionately to the rest of Britain's, British society? Like, it, that was done after the SPLC thing, but, like, that's the kind of shit where it's like, I don't think Nawaz is doing something good here. So I get, I get where the SPLC was coming from to a certain extent. Yeah, no, like, he's a piece of shit, and somehow this is supposed to, like, invalidate the entire SPLC. Yes, and thereby extension invalidate uh, the anti-hate network, which received money from the SPLC. SPLC ended up settling with Nawaz, and ended up paying Nawaz, I think, close to $3 million. Wow. And the thing is, a lot of people use this as evidence that the SPLC did this really bad thing. But many people, many lawyers, many civil liberty lawyers came out at the time criticizing the SPLC for settling, in part because it's not clear that they would have lost in court. However, the court proceedings would have cost way more than the $3 million that they settled for. So it comes to, again, the same thing that I mentioned earlier. Even for an organization as, long as, as large as the SPLC will sometimes settle, not because they're wrong, not because they're going to lose in court, but because going to court on these things drains people of money to such an extent that they'll just want to settle and get it over with. Something, something, critique of the justice system, because justice apparently costs money. And a lot of people were upset with the SPLC, because given their size, they probably could have fought it, and had a victory for people who uh, fall victim to these frivolous lawsuits. And so we can't, you know, we can't uh, speculate on that anymore because they didn't end up going the whole way and they apologized. And I think part of it too was they might have felt guilty for the icky things that I did mention earlier that they did in fact do that I think was gross. So there could be some sort of like sense of moral culpability there. So not only was the SPLC funding anti-hate, but apparently also the liberal government is funding. He's going to get there. But first he moves back into attacking Liz because of course he is. He tries to criticize Liz for calling everyone she doesn't like an extremist or a terrorist or racist. It's not illegal for Elizabeth Simons to be a coward or to be full of hatred, although she argues for people to be jailed for their hatred. Look, those are human emotions and they shouldn't be criminalized. But what Elizabeth Simons tried to do to me in Rebel News, she's done time and again to any conservative in Canada that she hates. And by that, I mean she smears them as extremist or, or violent or racist. She'll even suggest terrorism if she thinks she can get away with it. And so as it goes, Liz calls people from the Grace Life Church protests <laughs> extremists and racists. For example, those gentle souls at Grace Life Church 
out in Edmonton. I don't think Elizabeth Simons has ever been there. I'm pretty sure she hasn't. But she said that people who support them are extremists and racists. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no. And he Not says... The truth. <laughs> he says she wasn't there, so you can't trust her on even these basic facts. But I was like, Kevin Johnston was there. And Kevin Johnston was someone who's, like, praised Paul from, who's a fucking neo-Nazi. <laughs> right. Uh, you're, <clears throat> I think you're referring to Paul from. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, yes, from. okay. I know Paul from. I've had dinner with this guy a number of times. He's been unfairly called a white supremacist and pro-Nazi and pro-everything else. What he is is a historian. The historical stuff that he talks about would be from the white angle of it, which he's allowed to do. You're allowed to talk about the white side of the argument, which he does. But then he goes, she also thinks the people involved with Wexit are racist. Hey, look at this. She smeared the Wexit folks as racist. She and on this show, we've covered Pat King, who was promoting white genocide conspiracies. So, like, I don't know. That sounds pretty racist to me. And Pat King was pretty involved in the Wexit movement. We have Mahmoud Abdimajad, who states that... Um, no matter what, we are going to infiltrate government's education systems. We're going to infiltrate uh, every uh, way possible into the Western world. What we're going to do is not only infiltrate by flooding with refugees, we're going to infiltrate the education systems to manipulate it to endorse this kind of behavior. This kind of behavior then endorses less procreation all right so the less procreation the less white people or you know anglo-saxon let's say anglo-saxon because when i say white all all the antifa guys call up the race card so we're gonna call ourselves anglo-saxon and then he's like she also thinks that the lockdown people are racist she said people who are against lockdowns and extreme Pandemic measures are racist. I, I get the, the feeling she calls anyone she doesn't like a racist. And again, Chris Sky, Paul Frum, Adam Skelly, like we've been through this shit. Like, <laughs> we've covered all these people on our podcast already. Chris Guy, we we played on our show him promoting anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. At that point, you have to start to realize that there's something else going on here. Yeah, it's called control yeah. of the state. You have to admit people. it. And who's in control right now? The government. Who controls the government right now? We don't have to answer that if you don't want to. But like, <laughs> <laughs> we got the globalists in charge of the government. Financial interests in charge of the government. But then he, he goes through this whole list and goes, she calls anyone she doesn't like a racist. And it's like, yeah, because they're racists. I don't <laughs> don't know why this is hard and part of it is like it makes it seem like she's going out of her way just to call people she doesn't like racists but i'm like or is it that she covers racists because that's her job yeah she's part of anti-hate network of canada surprisingly she covers hate groups and then he gets mad because they haven't gone after any of the the troubling wave of anti-semitic hate that is bubbling over on the left and I, I think they have called some of that out. Uh, I mean, we've called some of that out. Uh, it's a matter of there can be anti-Semitism on the left. I don't doubt that one bit. There's also racism on the left. I don't doubt that one bit. And we've, I've called it out when it's happened, you know. 
I think there's cases that are definitely not anti-Semitic hate that the right wants to paint as anti-Semitic hate for political reasons, but that's a different story. Yeah, I think Ezra probably means like Corbyn style, like social democracy or like anything critiquing Israel. Ezra is also mad that they don't focus on other extremists, saying they only exist to target Justin Trudeau's enemies specifically. Although I would argue white nationalist extremists are probably the largest extremist groups in Canada, so it would make sense that that would be their primary target. Ezra then makes this weird, bizarre claim that they signed a contract with Trudeau. Look, I haven't read every word on their hate site, but they only seem to accuse conservatives and Christians of hate, and me too, I'm Jewish, but never leftists, including the troubling wave of anti-Semitic hate on the left. And in terms of extremism, they don't have a lot to say about extremist Islamic-inspired terrorism, or even Sikh extremists or Tamil Tiger extremists, none of that. It's almost as if they only exist to smear, you know, Justin Trudeau's enemies and no one else. And it appears that way because they signed a contract with Trudeau to do so. And I have a copy of that contract right here. And he says Trudeau, but here's the thing. They received grant money from the government. So not from the liberal government, but by the government who offers grants to groups who do certain things. So they got a grant. Yeah. But Ezra says that they signed a contract from Trudeau to then spy on people. And the purposes are described in Annex A of the contract. So it's an attachment. Um, Let's go there now. The Canadian Anti-Hate Network this is what they're being paid to do, will increase the organization's capacity to counter online hate by hiring 14 members to carry out the monitoring of extreme right groups, report on their activities, and file complaints with law enforcement? It'll educate the public as to these groups and the damage they create? So, so the government of Canada, Justin Trudeau and Stephen Gilboa are using tax dollars to pay this anti-hate group to, to spy on people? I love how this is the second incident where uh, Ezra thinks that because a research organization of some kind received a grant from the government, that therefore this is a contract to spying? I think it's kind of like because to them, like social forces and like, structures don't exist it's only like relations between individuals because it's kind of like how it becomes instantly an attack on Ezra or like it's instantly like it must be a personal connection type of thing yeah like as if Trudeau is it's like Trudeau's personally handing the money as to some large body of like bureaucrats reading a bunch of like solicited grant uh letters and then through a committee selecting the recipients (laughs) yeah no it's got to be trudeau personally signing over the check and then personally walking up to liz and giving it to her uh it's got to be Catherine mckenna going directly to the un secretary general and being like hey kick out sheila gunreed like 
there isn't any other possibility that like maybe there are just structures in place to like both give grants and also deal with disruptive like political activists that are trying to disrupt like a UN meeting I don't know it's just so their way of looking at the world is just so like broken he then just goes there's two people specifically that Ezra does not like that sit on the board of the anti-hate network Richard Warman the disgraced censor who turned the Canadian Human Rights Commission into his own personal piggy bank by prosecuting his personal enemies for profit. His misconduct is why Parliament actually voted to remove the censorship power from the Canadian Human Rights Commission. We haven't talked about Warman in a long time, but he was written... Well, Ezra focused on him specifically when he was writing the book Shakedown, and Warman became like his enemy... (laughs) to target because Warman specifically went after Nazis online and was reporting them to the Human Rights Commission. And Ezra, using this work, tried to shut down the Human Rights Commissions and got Stephen Harper to change the law, which arguably changed it for the worse. It's made uh, it's made uh, targeting hate speech more difficult in Canada. And so it's something that we we should welcome back <laughs> to a certain degree. But Richard Warman's on this, uh, done a lot of great service, ton of respect for Richard Warman, and uh, sits on this board. So for me, that's a good thing. For Ezra, it's his like sworn enemy. So of course it's bad. One of the other per- people is Kurt Phillips. And I want to credit Kurt Phillips because he, he did a blogging for Anti-Racist Canada. And I've used his work constantly on this podcast because back in the 90s and early 2000s when no one was writing about this shit he was documenting it all online all the like neo-nazi movements in canada and far-right organizing and it's a an amazing resource that exists online and he was eventually doxxed by i believe people associated with ezra or i think ezra takes credit for doxing him even in this video there's kurt phillips who we at rebel news exposed as an antifa supporter he's a coward too he was doing it in a hidden capacity we revealed him and so kurt phillips has listened to the show cool guy his work is great and so again this is another person that ezra hates but for the reason why he hates these people is because they've targeted Ezra throughout his career because Ezra himself has behaved shittily, you know? <laughs> Maybe if you want to, like, not be targeted by anti-hate movements, um, don't work with hate groups. Pretty easy solution there. And we did an, uh, an episode that was a breakdown of one of his chapters of Shakedown. I'll probably post it in the show notes. I can't remember which one it is. But if you find, like, the Shakedown episodes and it'll have Nazi in the title because... Richard Warman was like one of the focus uh, of that chapter and a lot of the background information that I used to, to debunk a lot of Ezra's claims back in that time period was all done with the help of Kurt's work at the uh, Anti-Racist Canada blog. Phillips listened to that episode. He liked it. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> nice. Go Kurt. And Ezra ends the episode. By contrasting the grant the anti-hate network received with the fact that Trudeau's government failed a promise to support veterans. And you bet they'll get their government grant against next year. They'll get their grant and probably even more. There's no money for our Canadian Armed Forces veterans, by the way. 
And the only reason that I can think that this is in here is just to be like, why are we spending money on these people who are lying about conservatives when the Trudeau government won't even help our veterans? Hmm. I wonder if funding mechanisms are different for federal programs and probably not even significant grants considering the federal budget. Hmm. A mystery that can't be solved. So to end... Uh, anti- the Anti-Hate Network posted a response to this episode. And we're not going to read the whole thing. They bring up a bunch of things that we've already brought up on the podcast. There was just some things that we wanted to I wanted to highlight that was in there. In particular, their own breakdowns of some of the things that Ezra had said on this episode. But also sort of like what what happened in the first place that Ezra is not talking about. So they explain why, why might... Liz post something that suggested that Rebel incited this terrorist. Now, of course, they've worded it very legally, so they're not saying that Reza or that Ezra or Rebel News in fact incited this terrorist. They're just saying that, like, what was the background information here? And so they say she drew on her existing expertise and knowledge and confirmed that one during Alexandra Bissonnette's criminal trial which prosecuted him for his Quebec mosque shooting, evidence was led that he had consumed media from individuals related to Rebel News, specifically Gavin McGuinness, who at the time of the Quebec mosque shooting was still employed by Rebel. And two, during Darren Osborne's criminal trial, which prosecuted him for driving a van into a crowd of Muslim worshippers in England, evidence was presented that he had consumed media from Tommy Robinson. He was also an email subscriber of Rebel Media, According to media reports familiar to Miss Simmons, prior to the impugned incident, Mr. Robinson was also associated with Canada's rebel media at the time. Simmons read the relevant sections of the New Zealand government's... And then three, Simmons read the relevant sections of the New Zealand government's Report Royal Commission of Inquiry into the terrorist attack on Christchurch, including the finding that found that the Christchurch terrorist donated... $106.68 to Rebel News, that's Australian dollars, to Rebel News Network as part of donations to what the commission described as far-right anti-immigration groups. So what is missing, this is me now, that was from their, their thing, what is missing is that regardless of the truth of whether incitement is accurate here, this terrorist did donate to Rebel. And these other terrorists were watching rebel content. Unsurprisingly, they continue to at least provide something to watch for these far-right terrorists that go on to kill people. They conclude that while Miss Simon's reliance on these fightings was reasonable at the time of posting the retweet, given the legitimacy of the sources, she still issued an apology to Rebel News. Rebel News issued its own statement following the Royal Commission's findings, stating that the ultimate recipient of the donation was another project. Which seems a bit weird, like, uh, what does it matter that it was another project? They still donated to Rebel News. I do not know how that's exculpatory to Rebel News. Yeah. So then they go on to the factually incorrect statements of Ezra Levant that were made in the episode that we just listened to. Ezra Levant therefore misleads his readers when he stated that it took months for her to confess that she made it all up. And so they respond, Firstly, Miss Simmons posted an apology two days after posting the retweet. Secondly, she did not confess that she made it all up. She put the apology up briefly, then deleted it. 
And they go, the apology was live for 28 days before it was reposted yesterday in accordance with the settlement agreement. They then quote Ezra saying, incredibly, Simons threatened to delete her apology in 90 days. But as they explained, the 90-day period was part of the settlement Rebel News agreed to. It's standard. <laughs> God. Ezra then again called uh, uh, her a confessed liar. And again, Simons never stated that she lied. She didn't apologize for lying. It then says she gets paid to lie and that it is just fine by anti-hate. That is what they pay her for. Read the contract. It's all in there. And so she did. And when faced with the prospect of being sued and going to trial, only then did she admit that she just lied and made the whole thing up all along. She knew she had no evidence, but she was paid to lie. That, that really is her job. And then it says, anti-hate does not lie, and it does not pay people to lie. <laughs> and then he also says that... Uh, the Canadian Anti-Hate Network has a contract to explicitly defame conservatives. The disinformation and defama defamation campaigns by antihate.ca are explicitly laid out in their government contract. And this is not true. Ezra Levant claims to have seen this contract, so we challenge him to show his evidence or admit it's a fabrication. And then they go on to say, while many of the above statements made by Ezra Levant could rise to the findings of defamation, they are red herrings that detract from the real issues. So yeah, it's no wonder Ezra doesn't want to talk about that, that aspect. I mean, how would you feel if uh, someone who went on a killing spree had donated money to your channel? It might just make me question what it was that I was doing. Hmm. I sure wish Ezra would like have a little bit of introspection. And it is worth ending on for the amount of times that he called her a liar and a confessed liar and all of this that her apology again does not even state that she lied so i'll read the apology again liz said i deleted a tweet that suggested the christchurch terrorist was incited by rebel news to commit violence i did not have evidence to support that and apologize to rebel news saying that you did not have evidence to support something doesn't necessarily mean that you lied. There could be many kinds of indications. Like, at some point, evidence builds up to, to create a narrative. But whether or not you had sufficient evidence or enough evidence to support something is a different story altogether, you know? That's not lying. Lying would be you knew that this was false, and therefore you said it anyways. Where you could say something wrong even though you didn't know at the time that it was false. And in this case, we don't know. I'm not going to say that it was false, but I'm also not going to say that it's true because Ezra might try to sue me. <laughs> the thing is, too, it was a retweet. It wasn't even Liz's claim. That's not... Even then, like, it wouldn't have been her lie. Like, even if somehow this was somebody just, like, making up a um, absolute untruth about Rebel News. Liz didn't make the post. Because it could have just been like, it caught her eye, and it was like, oh, yes, this evidence of the donation, I'm going to retweet this, without even thinking of the inciting part. Yeah, and like, it's, I don't know, it does kind of set a like, worrying precedent about like, like, that they settled over a retweet, because like, at what point does tweeting online become like a defamation? 
if you are like again literally just retweeting something that doesn't necessarily like hold up in court literally it's just a very like weird thing to do because again it's a retweet on twitter where anybody can kind of say anything and people say a lot of bullshit and i guess we'll end on this note since it was a repeated theme throughout this segment which is that even though they are a larger organization and i would have loved for them to take on this lawsuit these lawsuits cost a lot of money Mm -hmm. and the way this system is set up is it disadvantages people from wanting to go through with defending themselves and leads them to settlement agreements which are not fair and the fact that ezra can keep throwing around these lawsuits is a problem it's a problem in our country and we need more robust anti-slap legislations if there's people like us making this content I want to know. I would love it for a bigger organization to take this shit on so that other people can legitimately criticize these people for the shit that they actually spew out into the world without the constant threat of there being a, uh, uh, lawsuits waiting in the periphery, you know? Yeah, no, like, my critique there wasn't, like, aimed at the Canadian Anti-Hate Network because they are, like, a small organization. They can't afford to handle every lawsuit that gets thrown their way, I'm sure. But, like, yeah, that, you know, somebody with enough money for frivolous lawsuits can kind of just, like, sue anybody and then get a settlement out of it because the other organization or person can't afford to go to court over it is a, like, worrying thing in the Canadian justice system. Much respect to Liz and the work done by uh, the Canadian Anti-Hate Network and uh, Solidarity. I'm sure there's a lot of hate coming your way because of this, and uh, I hope it doesn't deter you, and I hope you keep up the great work. And I guess a a pre-proactive segment, go donate to the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. No Hungry Queers, or Food for Queers, which is a primarily uh, London, Ontario-based, but also like more broadly southern, southwestern Ontario group of queer and LGBTQ plus people who do a lot of great work, uh, and they're doing a like food support kit, basically, generally based in London again, um, and raising money to try to feed. Uh, food insecure people in the London area. Every $50 contributes to create a grocery kit for folks in need, and the donation link is just, it'll be in the show notes. Uh, They also are accepting um, non-perishable food items, and you can contribute with uh, e-transfer or, um, I believe, like PayPal or your credit card and whatever. Awesome. Go donate. They're really good. I like them. 
And if you support and enjoy what you've heard so far, please give us a few bucks over on patreon.com slash imperial news. If you want to stay informed about what we're doing, you can also find us on Twitter at Imperial News with a Z. We have a private Facebook group called Imperial News. We also have a Discord set up, and we'll be doing Twitch streams every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can find all the links to our social media stuff in the show notes. Lastly, you can email us any questions at imperial.fake.news at gmail.com. Special thanks to my friend Mason Tickle for the transition beats. You can find his work at striatum.bandcamp.com. I also want to say he has a new project out called Head in a Box. I'll try to share it. They have a, He wrote a new song as well for that project that is uh, uh, against the anti-mask protesters. So you should go check that out. And I will link that in the show notes as well. Thank you for listening. And Majid Nawaz for the crime of blocking me on Twitter. You're canceled. Albumbia, Albumbia, how lovely are your wheat fields.